seated. But uh, we're going to look at verses 22 through 11 of the next chapter. Luke writes, And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid that, excuse me, afraid after he found out that he was a Roman a citizen and because he had bound him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you said to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary? the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. And that is why they are sad, you see. I'm sorry, I had to say that. I had to. I've dealt with this for days. <laughs> am I going to say it or am I not going to say it? I did. <laughs> but the Pharisees confessed both. That's why they're happy. Then they, there arose a loud outcry. And the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, 
commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts as we look at this passage. The dissension that arises when testimony is given of you. The way that the human heart can rebel and just not receive the things that you speak to our hearts. Rebel against your truth. I pray that our hearts would receive from you today or that you would have your way in our hearts. And Lord, as we belong to you, as we are yours, your followers, your disciples, your children, Lord, lead and guide us, we pray. Might we be joined together as one voice proclaiming you as our God and followers of your truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. I really was dealing with this for several days, just whether or not I was going to say that little line. I'll never forget when the first time I told my grandchildren that, uh, my, my older grandchildren. Oh, they thought it was so funny. <laughs> anyway. As we look at this passage, beginning in verse 22, of course, we're picking up from the previous verses, and Paul had, of course, been accused by the, uh, by the Jews of defiling the temple. Uh, they, they were angry with him. He wound up being arrested, uh, uh, or actually, th there was a riot that ensued because of his presence there. Uh, the, the Jewish mob was just going crazy. They, they wanted him condemned and wanted him arrested and so forth. Uh, but there was a riot that ensued there because of, of, of their, um, well, their, their, their hatred of Paul, quite frankly. And uh, the, the commander of the, the Roman garrison there found out. Uh, they, they came and, and of course, uh, uh, rescued Paul from the mob. And then we see that he asked the commander if he could speak to them and so forth, he allowed him to, and, and that's what was taking place last time we were together in chapter 2, up to verse 21. And as he's giving his testimony, la last week, of course, we, we talked about the value of personal testimony and all. And this is exactly what, what, what Paul is doing as he give his, gives his defense before the Jews, sharing what the Lord had done in his life, sharing what the Lord had spoken to him, and so forth. And then in verse 21, when we, we see that the Lord told him these words, then he said to me, the Lord Jesus said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. We see in verse 22, and they listened to him until this word. The word, of course, being Gentile. The word that God would send him to give testimony to the Gentiles 
And from these, from the perspective of these Jewish men, it's like they're, they're thinking, as if to say God really wants to save Gentiles, come on now, what's wrong with you? Because of their own hatred for Gentiles. And, and so at that point, they just wouldn't listen to another word, and they respond, as we see there in verse 22, uh, by, by crying out, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Pastor Chuck Smith wrote this in regard to these words. Don't forget that the Jews believed God created Gentiles to fuel the fires of hell. They believed it was impossible for a Gentile to be saved, and they were incensed by the suggestion that God would actually call a man to preach salvation to the Gentiles. So we see this, this prejudice. I think we can rightly call it a racial prejudice um, on, in, in the hearts of these Jewish men because of these hate, the, their hatred for these Gentiles, not, not of them. They looked down upon them, believed them to be less than themselves and not worthy to come into the presence of God. Even though they would allow Gentiles to, to be proselytized and, and worship their God, they did not see, they did not see uh, Gentiles as having the same standing before God and could not actually receive salvation, but they thought it would be fine for them to worship the same God because they believed them to be truly gods, but could not be saved by him because of who and what they were. Earlier in Acts chapter 15, you know, part of what we've seen through the book of Acts, of course, is not only the gospel being preached to the, the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And it was Peter that we saw who was first given the opportunity to preach the message of salvation to Gentile people. We saw that in Acts chapter 10, if you remember, at the household of Cornelius. And then in chapter 15, we see the, the church coming together to deal with this issue of what are we going to do about Gentiles coming to faith with us, with, with us Jewish people. You know, we, we have uh, uh, um, been made right with God. We've been worshiping him. We, we, we do the, the Jewish ceremonies and so forth. What are we going to require of them and so forth? That's what that council in Jerusalem was all about there in Acts chapter 15. But these are the words of Peter as he stood up and, and spoke in verses 7 through 11 in Acts chapter 15. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, so even within the church, much dispute about this thing in regard to Gentiles and Jews being coming together within the church, what are we going to do about our differences? Well, this is what Peter said. He rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? 
But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now, the average Jewish person would not agree with that, and we see the response here in Acts chapter 22. We see the Apostle Paul later saying, uh, writing to the Galatians in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, a familiar passage to us. He wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. As Willie said a little while ago, we're family, aren't we? We are one in Christ Jesus. We are equal in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And we, we could go to the book of Romans chapter 2 and we see Paul dealing with this issue of, of, of Jews and Gentiles being joined together. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2. Many, many passages in which we see Jew and Gentile being made one in Christ Jesus. And he goes on, Paul writes, neither slave nor free, you can say rich nor poor, uh, male nor female, we're all one in him. But more importantly, in the context here, as Paul is speaking to the Jews, these, these guys don't really care what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians or what Peter said at the council. This is what their belief was. Well, in Psalm 72, Solomon writing that song, psalm, he wrote of the coming Messiah, and he said in 72, verse 17, Psalm 72, 17, His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Jeremiah, in chapter 4, verse 2, wrote, And you shall swear, the Lord lives. In truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. Many other places in the Old Testament that speak about God desiring to reach out to the other nations, tribes, and tongues, wherever they may be and whomever they may be. And guys, as we're familiar with this, and we, and we see so often the reality of the difficulty of prejudgments that are made upon people simply because of who they are. Might we as followers of Jesus, regardless of wherever someone might be from, whatever language they may speak, whatever their social standing or economic position, whether they are conservative or liberal, whatever their skin color, formally educated or not, however they dress, etc., might we never look at anyone as somehow inferior to us. Might we never do that. We have been made one in Christ Jesus. That's a lesson that needs to be taught over and over and over again. Uh, and sadly, even within the church, it needs to be taught over and over and over again because the sinful nature of men 
bring, pre, bring prejudice. And we need to get past that. And, and, I, and, I, and I love to see, even as Willie was up here sharing earlier, looking at the congregation, just loving to see this, the family of God. You know, looking around, amen, amen. You know, uh, it makes me think of that, 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 that children's song, Jesus Loves the Little Children, right? All the children of the, of the world. And what does it say? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. You know, we got the red and yellow, black and white in here. You know, and, and I, I just love that. I, I love to see the diversity within the church. And so let's make sure that we always give that very, very strong attention. In a world that is so divided by so many different things, in so many different ways, might the church not be over anything. We are one in Christ Jesus. Amen? And so, as we see in verse 24, the commander ordered him to be brought back into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. So he, he basically is saying, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. We're going to find out what's going on. Going to ask this guy some questions, and if he's not honest with us, we'll torture him until he does. Right? Common practice in our world, especially in warfare. Right? Espionage. And apparently in religious differences. You know, I mean, that, that's what happens in our world. He was going to interrogate Paul until. He said something. You know, th that's a part of the violence that is in the heart of men and, and, and men believing that through exercising uh, violence upon someone, they can actually have their way. Bullying, so to speak. But this is, this is a way of the human heart. It, it truly is. Now, Jesus said something about something like this, not specifying this, but it's included in it, certainly. In Mark 10, verses 42 to 45, Jesus called them to himself. He's speaking of his apostles in this passage. He said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Like this commander was doing here in Acts 22. Yet it shall not be so among you. You know, as, as I want to pause there for a moment. If, if Jesus were a pastor in the wor Western world today, standing behind a pulpit like this, I would see him doing something like this, saying those words, you know what Gentiles do. You know how they, they, uh, those who are rulers uh, lord it over them. The great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you because you follow me. That's how it would be. These are very, very strong words. And we as followers of Jesus 
are strongly commanded by Jesus to follow him, to imitate him, to become like him. We can't. We can decide that we want to do it. We can decide that we want to be like him, but we don't have the power to do so. That's why he's given us his spirit to enable us to be what we can't be on our own. So he gives us the fruit of the Spirit, as we see in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. And so God helps us to do this. But, but I think we can't emphasize enough that Jesus said, you will not act like people in this world who do not know me. Like people of this world who do not know me. Because you're following me. You are mine. I've placed my spirit within you. So you're to be different. And there's a biblical word for this. It's called holy. Being set apart. Different than the world. Different than the way we used to be ourselves. That's what God, God has called us to. And so as Jesus said, back to verse 43 here in Mark chapter 10, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you sh shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires, desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now we've got to give those last words of Jesus some real thought. He refers to his own example. He refers to himself as one who was following his teaching here in verse 43 and 44. Whoever's going to be great in God's kingdom will be a servant. The first shall be the slave of all. That's what God calls us to. As we come to understand that and see that Jesus did that, and he says, he did not, he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Now, we have to go back to his mission the reason that his father had sent him as the Lamb of God to die on that cross, taking the sin of the world upon himself, buying us back for himself, redeeming us through his blood. He serves you and me in that way. And I think, it's a, I think it's a good thing, I think it's an important thing for us to think of those things and, and come to this place where we're, we're realizing that Jesus first came as my servant. Not that I commanded him, but he served me in a way that I didn't know I needed to be served until he made me aware of it. And he did for me, he gave to me the greatest need that I possibly ever could realize that I have, and that is the salvation of my soul. That's what Jesus did. And he served you and he served me. So we see that 
he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. That was his first coming. He gave himself to serve you and me. Went to that cross, was executed on that cross. His body was removed from that cross, placed in that tomb, and then on the third day rose again. And then for 40 days he walked on this earth, and on that 40th day after that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is now today praying for you and for me, making intercession for us. Isn't that an amazing thing? We know he's coming back. We call him Lord and Master. We serve him. We are his servant, certainly. And, he, and we are to serve him, even though he said, I came not to, be, not to be served, but to serve and to give. That was his first coming. That's done. He came. He's with the Father. He's coming back. And until he does, and in fact, including the time that, that he does come back, I mean, from as we're walking in this world now, uh, without his physical presence, we call him Lord and Master. We serve him. We always will because he's worthy to be served. We bow before him even as we declared we would, as we declared that we do in the songs that we sang this morning. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Amen. He's worthy. So we bow to him. We worship him. We serve him now. But that, that, those are such important things for us to see. But, but we, we see that the ways of Jesus and the way that he leads us as his followers by example as well as by word are so different than the ways of this world. That's a point that we need to see in all of this. So different in the ways of this world. Of course, force and violence was not the way of our Lord Jesus. Well, in verses 25 and forward, we see that, that the commander um, speaks to or has uh, uh, Paul uh, bound and he's going to do this. Verse 25, as he's bound there in, in that verse, Paul says to the centurion who overseeing the soldiers who are actually doing the binding of Paul, he just asks him a question. By the way, <laughs> it's, almost, it, that, that's, it's almost a sense that you get. He says, by the way, hey, dude, you know, did you know? I mean, is it really legal for you to be doing this to a Roman citizen? And, and, and the centurion must have been I mean, he's like, what? You know, I mean, Romans, so he ran to the commander. And he tells him, hey, this guy's a Roman citizen. Be careful. And then the commander's going, what? He goes to Paul, are you really Roman? He goes, yeah. He said, well, I paid a lot of money to get my citizenship. Paul says, well, I was, I was born a citizen. And so, they all withdraw, almost in horror, withdrawing, because of the threat toward them in acting this way, doing this to an uncondemned 
Roman citizens, for which they can be penalized even to the point of death. And so that's, that's why they were that way. You know, and, yeah, I mean, th- this is a great example of, of the way that, you know, when, when laws are enforced, it, it does make people change their behavior. Isn't that true? And yet in our world today, it seems like th- the world thinks that that's not even true. That somehow you can just talk to somebody and, and they'll change. No, it's not the way the human heart is. It's not what we do. If there is a threat of some kind of discipline and, and, and even the punishment of death is out there before us, if we do commit certain crimes, then that's going to somehow keep us from committing that crime. It, it, is a, it does act as a deterrent. So many people say, you know, the death sentence really isn't a, a, de- a deterrent to crime. And, and we, we find in places where it is, well, it is a deterrent. It is. That's just the way the human heart is. It's sad that it, that has to be done, but that's what does need to be done. And that's why, why the Lord, God himself, knowing the human heart, prescribes things such as that, even the death penalty for certain kinds of crimes. So we see the reality of that. But here we see Paul. Knowing all this, knowing the law, he brings this up, he exercises basically his right as a Roman citizen. And he lets them know he's a Roman citizen, so they'll treat him as such. And it was perfectly right and just for him to do so. Uh, One writer wrote this in regard to, to these things. At the close of this chapter, Dr. Dodd has the following judicious remark. As unrighteous as it was in the Roman officer on this, on this popular clamor to attempt putting this holy apostle to the torture, so reasonable was St. Paul's plea as a Ro- Roman citizen to decline that suffering. It is a prudence worthy the imitation of the bravest of men not to throw themselves into unnecessary difficulties. True courage widely differs from rash and heedless temerity, nor are we under any obligation as Christians to give up our civil privileges, which ought to be esteemed as the gift of God to every insolent and turbulent invader. In a thousand circumstances, gratitude to God and duty to men will oblige us to insist upon them. And a generous concern for those who may come after us should engage us to labor to transmit them to posterity, improved rather than impaired. And the writer goes on and says, this should be an article in the creed of every genuine Britain, written by a Briton, obviously. But I would add to that that it's certainly right for us as Americans to do the same. We have certain rights that can be easily um, preyed upon. And it's right for us to insist 
that the law be enforced. It's right to do so. And laws like this are given for the purpose of the protection of its citizens. Now, one thing we must do is we've got, we've got to remember, as believers, as those we're following after Jesus, our very first citizenship is in heaven. I, you, we are first citizens of heaven. But we also are Americans. And American law, the Constitution was given for a reason, to protect its citizens. And our, uh, those who exercise those, those, those laws, those who defend the laws, make new laws and so forth, they're doing so. They're bound by the Constitution to protect American citizens. And we're seeing those, those rights and privileges being washed down the tubes. It's right for us to do so. Let's, let's first understand, though, that we are American citizens. And we don't exercise our rights the way somebody who does not have the Holy Spirit within them would do it. We exercise our rights in a godly way, in a Christ-like way. Even Paul himself showing an example of it. So let's be careful on how we respond to things. But it certainly is right to insist on being protected by the law that is given to us to do so. Um, And not just simply protection from physical harm, but protection to exercise our rights of freedom of speech, for example. That's one of those things that's really going going away for us. Well, with all that taking place, once this uh, uh, commander understood that that Paul was a Roman citizen, they backed away. He wanted to figure out what was going on. So he um, loosened Paul, released him, and then arranged for the following day in verse, verse 30, the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds, commanded the chief priests and all the council to appear, and brought Paul down and set him before them. He wanted to witness an exchange between the council, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish leadership, and Paul himself. And so in verse 1, we see Paul beginning his defense here. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren. Notice he calls them men and brethren. You know, um, one thing we have to remember is that the, the Jewish council, they, they, they were the ones who basically interpreted the law and, and, and exercised any kind of punishment that the law might be worthy of. Jewish law. It would be like us going to the Supreme Court, basically. That's a position that they had. And so we have, to re- we have to remember that. So, you know, if we were in a situation like this, we would address, you know, the, the judge who's overseeing the case, even in the lower court, say, Your Honor. He calls them men and brethren. He wanted to make sure that they understood, that he understood, that they were all together, they were part of this. And, and, and quite frankly, Paul had been a part of this Jewish leadership, of the Sanhedrin, of this council, some years before, a couple decades before. And they knew that. Some of them were still there. He knew some of them, no doubt. 
And so th- this is th- what's, what's going on as he does this. So he calls them men and brethren, and he says, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And he did. And as he got hit in the mouth, you know, Paul, Paul responds by saying, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. He saw the hypocrisy in it. And he states that hypocrisy. For you sit and you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law without having been condemned? This, this high priest believed that Paul was lying. Of course he didn't live with all good conscience before God, or he wouldn't be before me. He wouldn't be doing the things that he's doing. He wouldn't be saying the things that he's saying if that were really true. But one thing that the high priest is leaving out is the reality that he, he didn't know this, blinded by his own ambitions, blind by his own, uh, uh, his own desires. But Paul was preaching Jesus who came to fulfill the law, the Messiah, sent to save the world as John the Baptist introduced him. Well, Paul says these, um, makes these, uh, uh, makes that uh, statement, you know, (laughs) you whitewashed wall. I wonder if he was thinking about something that Jesus had said. In Matthew 23, the chapter where he is giving the, the, the seven different woes to the scribes and Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites, these scribes and Pharisees. One of those woes we find in verse 27 and 28. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know, that that should give us something to think about ourselves. In the sense that we can be the same as those Pharisees, as this high priest that Paul was dealing with, and wanting others to see us as much better than we really are, or pretending that we are much better than we really are, just presenting ourselves in a a whitewashed tomb filled with dead men's bones. Is it not true we can find that same attitude as easily in the church today as it was among Judaism in that day? Of course it is. You know, and it requires humility. Humility in order to for us to move ourselves from that place. But Paul goes on to say, you know, oh, I didn't know this was a high priest. Now, some think he was just being sarcastic. You know, in the sense that that couldn't be the high priest. High priest wouldn't do something like that. So I didn't know it was a high priest, you know. Being sarcastic, uh, being sarcastic, but others, and, and, and I fall into this camp myself, to be honest with you. Um, Paul had a, a vision problem. And I think he didn't see well enough to know that he was dressed in the high priestly garb. 
That's what I think. You know, Paul in Galatians 4.15b, the second part of that, he wrote to them saying, For I bear you witness that, that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. You know, uh, wanting to give them his own, his eyesight back, losing theirs if they could have done that. They loved him so much. That's the point of that. Later in that same letter, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, see with what large letters I've written to you with my own hands. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. And he's making the point that, that he's written this letter with his hand. The letters are large because, as you know, I don't see very well. And I think that's what the problem was. I think that's why he didn't understand who that was who said it. But as he's speaking, we get past this. And Paul, understanding, of course, that the group of the Sanhedrin, it had both Sadducees and Pharisees among them. And these different views of the resurrection, as we see Luke highlights uh, there in um, verse, uh, verse 8. And so he speaks on the resurrection. He, 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 he says there that in verse, in verse 6, he says, uh, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, uh, concerning the hope and, hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And it is true. I mean, his testimony was of the resurrected one, Jesus Christ, right? That he was executed, but on the third day he rose again to show who indeed he actually is. God manifest in the flesh. That he actually died to do what he came to do, die for the sins of the world. Showing that he can give life to men and women, to people, even as he was raised from the dead. And so, we, we see the reality of that, and Paul understood that this would bring division among them, get the attention off of himself and on them. Some of them would side with him, others would not, so he becomes a one of them. And, and so it just changed the whole thing. In his wisdom, he did that, you know, and, and it wasn't out of evil. He wasn't causing division. He was just using the division that was already there for his own safety. And so as they dissented with one another in, in regard to that, um, he fell in danger again. The commander thinking that these guys are going to pull this guy apart. So they bought him out, took him back to the barracks once again. Paul constantly in danger because of preaching the truth. And so... They came to his rescue once again, got him out of there, got him into the barracks. We don't know what kind of time of day that that was. I would assume it was fairly early in the day. Could have been a number of hours that Paul spent in his cell by himself before we see what happened in verse 11. We don't know what his thoughts were at the time. We're not told certainly thinking about all these things. 
coming to Jerusalem. And I would think that at least a part of his thought was centered on the idea that, you know, I, I, I need to make it to Rome. I've got to make it to Rome. I want to preach the gospel there. See, the, the center of the world as we know it. Well, Jesus came to him in the 11th verse. The following night. In fact, it was the night of the following day, actually, wasn't it? So it was not, not simply that night, but entire 24 hours plus, probably, that Paul was there. And the Lord stood by him, stood by him, and said, be of good cheer. Be encouraged. Be encouraged, Paul. Named him. He knows you by name as well, of course. For as you've testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Basically, Jesus comes to him and says, Paul, I've got you. I've got you. And your desire to go to Rome to preach the gospel there isn't something that is just of your own mind. It's of me. I'm going to send you there. Be encouraged. You're going to get past all this stuff here in Jerusalem. I'm going to send you to, 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 to Rome. Be comforted. Near the end of Paul's final letter, 2 Tim Timothy, the final letter that we know of, the final letter that is given to us in God's word, 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, near the end of that letter, verses 17 and 18, Paul writes, But the Lord stood with me, Luke writes in verse 11 of Acts 23, the Lord stood, stood by him. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul writes that he was delivered from the mouth of the lion. Now, was he referring to this particular incident from, from others, all of them combined? Well, he was so close to death that it was like close to execution. It was like he was removed from the mouth of the lion that was about to devour him. And the Lord stood with him. He delivered him. He said that he will continue to deliver me from every evil work. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And guys, you know that not only did he have Paul in his hand, he's got you and me. He's got us too. Whatever danger we may face, whatever difficulty we may have to go through, whatever affliction we may endure, if you are his child, if you have given your heart to Jesus, if the Holy Spirit resides within you, you are his, his child, his disciple. He's got you, man. He's got you. And it is a realization that he's got us that, that gives us strength to endure. I know, Lord, you're going to get me through this. What about over the 
couple thousand years since the birth of the church. And the thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of martyrs for Christ. Who have been slain by this world for their faith in Jesus. Was he not standing with them? He was. He went to the cross for them. How many other times had he preserved their lives before this actual execution took place in terms of their martyrdom, right? We don't know. We don't necessarily know all those stories. We know that for Paul, it was a number of times, and there would come a day when he would be executed, beheaded by Nero of Rome. But he stands by us until he's ready to bring us home. And certainly the glory of that moment is going to say is, is going to be something in which we will declare, the Lord, Lord, you stood by me. Finally, you brought me home. It's so good to see you. So good. To, I mean, I mean, the, 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 we are going to be so overwhelmed in his presence, in the, in the glory of his goodness and the glory of, of his majesty, his power, his might, his his holiness, his righteousness, his glory, his grace, his love, all that he is. We're going to be so overwhelmed. I don't think any of us are ever going to say, Lord, why didn't you protect me? We're going to get it all. He gave his life for us so that when our life here finally ends, we will be with him for eternity. Might we look to the reality of that? It's an amazing thing to know that God has us. He's got our backs. Isaiah 41.10, I want to close with this verse. I want you to be assured and comforted by this. God says through Isaiah to his people, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Hallelujah. He will uphold you and me with his righteous right hand. And Father, thank you for that truth. That you've given us that understanding. That you speak to us these words of hope, these words of comfort. That you've got us. Lord, to be upheld with your righteous right hand speaks with all of your power and might. You hold us up. And we know there's nothing more powerful than that. And yet we also know that there is an appointed day in which we will come to see you. We will join you face to face. Thank you for that understanding as well. Be honored and praised and magnified in our hearts. And Lord, even as we see the way that the Apostle Paul responded to the things that took place in his life, the things that he wrote, the things that Luke writes about him in response of 
of the Jews and all these things, Lord. Might we understand the reality of the spiritual warfare that takes place, that there is an evil one, the devil, Satan, formerly Lucifer, whose heart and desire is to bring destruction. He's come to seek and to kill and destroy, Jesus said. But you came to protect us from it, Lord Jesus. Thank you. You came to destroy the works of the devil. Thank you. You came to give us life and that more abundantly. Oh, Lord, we thank you and praise you. So I pray that everyone here would have that life. And even as we consider it now, I want to just simply ask as our heads are still bowed and our eyes closed, if there's anyone here who wants that life. Maybe you've never given your heart to Christ. Maybe you've never acknowledged your need for him. Maybe you've never asked him into your life. If you haven't, I'd like to pray for you right now. Would you raise your hand if that describes you? If I can pray for you. God bless you. I see one hand raised. Anyone else? Anyone else who knows that you need God, that you need the Lord Jesus? You want to begin to bow before him today. Anyone else? Father, we thank you for this one whose hand was raised. You know the heart. You know the needs. You know the, the problems, the afflictions, the, the, the turbulence in the life of this person, Lord. You also know the joys and, and the good things that, that have taken place. I, I just pray, Father, that you have your way with this one. Lord, that you would cause this person to, as they walk out of this building, that they will have a sense of your presence, a sense of your freedom, a sense of your love, knowing that they're forgiven, knowing that they're right with you. And that they can begin a brand new life following after you. Thank you, Lord. Even with the raising of the hand, you entered into this life. That raising of the hand was a confession to you. Thank you. So, Lord, we pray that you do that. And, and Lord, for anyone else who might be here and has not given their heart to you yet, Lord, do so. Do the same. Bring them to yourself. And we thank you for your love and your mercy. Have your way with us now, Lord, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.